0: Welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. What on earth does a book, the Bible, that was written over several thousand years ago in a time and a place and a space so far removed from your life and my life, by and about people, so different from us, who don't speak, didn't speak my native tongue, who wrote in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic about things and places and people which I maybe have never been or don't quite understand. What does that have to do with my everyday life? Why should I read it? How would it affect me? And why bother? Listen to what the Austrian priest and philosopher Ivan Illich might say in response to that. Neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society, or I would add, a person. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. One so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past, and our present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into our future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. But if this alternative story (laughs) that has the power to change societies, cultures like ours, and our own lives is going to be true enough and powerful enough to actually do it, it cannot be, I, I, I might uh, suggest, a, a simple story, like how the leopard got its spots. It <laughs> can't be a fable like that or a quick tale. It cannot be a trite story, seven steps to the new you. It must be an honest story, like honest about how messed up the world can really be, <laughs> how complex the challenges we face really are, and how dark The human situation can get sometimes. It must be a hopeful story, one that doesn't just say honestly how it is, but it must be honest and purposeful as in where could it be or can the future be better than the present? Where are we going and why? It must be a story that's relatable to my life and your life, to the situations that we find ourselves in today. And for goodness sake, it can't be boring. And I think that's one of the challenges when it comes to the Bible. In many ways, it has not been told to us as an alternative story. It has not been taught to us, preached to us, read to us as an alternative story. In some cases, it hasn't been read or taught as a story at all. And here's where we get to blame our pastors and our churches and Bible schools or whatever, just for a moment. Maybe I'm over exaggerating or oversimplifying or generalizing. But. At least, if I look at my own experience and the many conversations I've had with other people, it, it it perhaps has has even indirectly come across to us in many different things other than a story. In some cases, like a rule book for life. Is that what the Bible is—a rule book for life? I mean, if it is, that's problematic because there are some rules for life in there. Uh, there are a lot of rules for life that aren't in there. And then there are some that are in there who think, really, that's a rule? Or how do we know that that wasn't just for that time? How do I follow that now? I don't even know exactly what that means for my marriage or my context or my money or my ethnicity or my family or my world. So the Bible simply is a rule book for life, not enough. Or what about an encyclopedia about God? <laughs> that's how many of us have been taught. The Bible is an encyclopedia about God. But does that mean it's really only for the the theologians, the people who really want to know a lot about God or really can understand the original languages of Greek or Hebrew or whatever or have thoughts about it, but for the everyday person who isn't asking those questions or doesn't know how to understand those, really not relevant if it's only an encyclopedia about God? Or what about um, a collection of moralistic short stories? Not an alternative story, but just a bunch of stories. (laughs) hey, David was brave and courageous and he was able to slay the giant. So you can go and slay the giants in your life but, but, but just don't copy the rest of his life, and certainly don't sleep with someone who's not your wife and then murder her husband so that you can sort of uh, get him out of the picture and then um, lie about it to everyone. <laughs> oh yeah, don't do that. <laughs> right? Moralistic stories unfortunately fall short if we're looking for moralistic examples because there really aren't a lot of heroes in the Bible, and yet sometimes when we teach it as moralistic stories, that's what we're saying. Be like this person, be like that person. Or perhaps it's used as a pick-me-up pill to get me through the day, right? The daily bread or whatever. Here's your verse of the day, which perhaps can be good for the moment, um, but what if it doesn't connect with my life? Sort of like roulette, you know, verse of the day. It might land on black. It might land on 72. It might land on where I'm at today, but maybe not. Or it's a pick-me-up pill like, you know, like, you know, those rockets, those candies you get at Halloween, like gives you a five-second jolt of sugar, but an hour later, it's gone. It's not enough to give you energy. And if the Bible is just a pick-me-up pill for the day, sometimes it doesn't land where we need it. Sometimes it doesn't help in that day, or sometimes it helps for five minutes, but an hour later, we've completely forgotten about it. Or worse, maybe the Bible taught us spiritual darts to use in an argument. Quote this verse, memorize this passage, know this idea. Then you can argue with people who don't think it's true. Or then you can argue with people who think differently about that passage than you. And make sure you're armed and ready to defend your faith. Is that what the Bible is? Or maybe just like, hey, it's good vibes. You know? It's okay if you don't understand it. Just have it around, You know, kind of like the cross around your neck or whatever. Just keep it next to your bedside or make sure you have it with you or make sure people see that you have it so they know that that's what you believe or you're a true believer. Sometimes for us, the, the, the scriptures are not even told to us as a powerful, life-changing, alternative story. It hasn't even been told as a story at all. And then even when it has been told as a story, it's been told simplistically in simple categories. Uh, It's been told in a way that isn't um, complex enough to address the stuff going on in our lives. Sometimes we've told the Bible dishonestly um, like it's not really, we're not being honest about, you know, like we make stuffed animals about Noah's Ark, but we don't have any stuffed animals of all the dead people lying in the sea in the flood around Noah's Ark, right? We tell certain things dishonestly, or we talk about Noah and this great faith to build the Ark. We don't talk about when he got drunk and naked in his tent and his kids walked in and they're like, oh my gosh, or the mess of David's life or some of the heroes of the faith or some of the mess, like we talked about last week, the human situation, we aren't always honest about it or perhaps we tell it in a way that it's just that sort of moralistic kind of oversimplified or it's not hopeful we don't tell it in a way that it's hopeful enough or purposeful and give me direction in my life and sometimes quite frankly we just teach it or tell the story that's so boring (laughs) and irrelevant to our lives that we don't know how to connect with it yeah i think we can affirm and want to affirm In this series that we're doing, um, which we're calling What on Earth Am I Reading and Why Does It Matter to My Life? The why does it matter to my life is a really big part for us this isn't just trying to help you understand a few more things about the bible why does it matter to my life (laughs) and there's a qr code that's there um, that we'd love for you to scan it's just going to open up a google form where you can anonymously put in questions and i'd encourage you throughout this uh, message keep the google form open on your phone or device or whatever so that as you're listening as you have questions and thank you for those of you that are putting them in it's so good to read the questions you have it's helpful to know hey oh actually we're going to get to this one and so continue to put those questions in. You can do that anytime during this series, but of course today as you're listening. Where we head into today's message is actually to affirm that the Bible is in fact the alternative story. It is a life-changing, powerful alternative story. That is the heart of what scripture is. Not a bunch of moralistic lessons contained in a few stories, but a life-changing alternative story. And for those of us that maybe haven't thought about it like that, or maybe haven't thought about it enough like that, I want to say, this is not just a clever new idea that, oh, hey, there's a new way to see scripture or somehow that, hey, story is a really powerful medium, isn't it? So what if we think about story like this? No, this is actually the heart of what scripture is relaying to us is the true story of the world and you and me and God as it has unfolded over these thousand years. And in fact, we know this because Jesus himself told us that it was, it is indeed a life-changing story. And I want to read a passage today where Jesus is having a conversation with people who were desperate to know this truth, that, that what he said to them about the story they were in, explaining that scripture itself was part of a long story that they found themselves in, was the best news that they could have received, was so relevant, was so life-giving, was so hopeful to them. We pick up the story actually when after Jesus had died and was raised to life and a few people had started to see him alive and spread word about this, even though most of his followers at that time had scattered, had stopped really believing in him in the sense because he had been killed like every other messiah probably would have been killed by the Roman Empire. And so the movement was dead because the leader of the movement was dead and most of his followers were in despair and walking away from the center of what had happened in Jerusalem. And we pick up the story with two particular followers walking away um, discouraged at what had happened and listen to the conversation that Jesus has with them.
1: Now that same day, two of them Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us?
0: What's happening here in this story? We have these disciples, these followers of Jesus, who are walking away from Jerusalem after... Uh, having their hopes, as they say, crushed. What they had hoped would be good news for them as Israelites and freedom from Roman occupation and a a change of their future and uh, having their whole lives kind of redefined by Jesus and by the kingdom of God that was coming they feel completely discouraged. They're in despair. (laughs) They feel like their life is in pieces. They don't know what matters anymore. And they're walking away. They're walking away from community and just filled with discouragement and despair and sadness. And Jesus comes along and begins to talk with them. And if you notice what happens in this particular account, Jesus changes their whole world and their whole perspective by telling them an alternative story. Right? Their story was one of dashed hopes, of we thought, but now we realize, of great expectations that now have turned into um, you know, naive dreams that are never going to become a reality. And now we don't know what to make of our lives. That was their story. And Jesus comes alongside them. And in this conversation at the end of Luke's gospel, starts to have a, uh, tell them an alternative story. And he tells them that the alternative story is about him. Look what it says. He's trying to explain to them why they shouldn't be in despair, why they should have hope, why they can rethink now everything in their lives. And he says, it says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus explains to him, it says when he, he begins with Moses and all the prophets, so Moses uh, was a term to encapsulate the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then all the prophetic books. So all of the writings of God involved with his people and the, the, who God was and whatever, he says, it be, he begins, and, and the first book in the book of Moses is Genesis, which says, in the beginning, the creation of the world. Jesus goes back to the creation of the world and starts to tell them the alternative story. He's, in other words, he's rewriting history in their minds, their history, the history of the world, and saying, hey guys, you're missing the fact that this whole story from the beginning has been about me. He says it goes goes from beginning at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the world. He explains to them how the whole story or all these scriptures, what they meant concerning himself, concerning Jesus. He places himself at the center of history's unfolding story. This whole thing from the beginning, and not just you Jewish people, but all people and God and creation and the world. And he starts at the beginning and said, the whole story was running up to and about and through me. And he begins to explain how his teaching, his life, his death, and now his resurrection were the apex of the story of humanity from the very beginning. He's helping them rethink and re-see everything through through an alternative story, the story about him. And this wasn't just like, hey guys, enough of your problems. Let's talk about how the whole world is about me, right? Like That's not what he was saying. He, He was actually saying that he was helping them rethink their story in light of him and saying, there's a much bigger story. That you are a part of. And we know this because look at the impact it had. Wasn't that like, hey, enough about your problems, let me tell you about me. Look at the reaction they have when he tells them his story. In one sense, it made sense of their past. Right? It made sense of their past. It took the the broken pieces of their dashed hopes and began to put them together in a way that they could go, oh, that's why that happened. He was helping them make sense of the parts of their story that seemed difficult or confusing or um, unfinished or quite flat out broken and wrong. It was making sense of their past. As he told them the story about him, it made sense of their past. Not only that, it made them come alive in the present. They have this moment where they say to each other after, um, Cause he, he has a meal with them and breaks bread and then disappears. And then they, they realize, oh my gosh, he's alive. And they say to each other, weren't our hearts burning when he spoke, when he explained the story to us? Like, as Jesus spoke and explained this story, they felt themselves coming alive in the inside. When you say my heart burned, it meant like there's a vitality, a life. When we, the scriptures talk about eternal life, that's what it means, this life, this vitality inside of you. We were like coming alive by his words as he explained the whole story for us. This was not some disconnected theological idea about God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus. This was their story that made sense of their past and made them come alive in the present. They looked at each other and going, It's the same thing you look at each other when you experience something incredible or when two people fall in love or when two fans experience their team winning Then they shake each other and go, did you see that? Shared joy in the present. And it gave them hope and direction for their future. It actually says that after all, you know, they were, he met them while they were walking away from their community, walking away from Jerusalem, walking away to, they didn't know what was going to happen next. And by the time he's done, they turn around and they're heading back. They're heading back to their place of community. They're heading back with a sense of hope and not all the details sorted out, but a sense of purpose for their future. See friends, when Jesus explained to them the great story, that was running, that included, like, who is God? Who are you? How does all this run up to and into and through Jesus? It it made sense of their past. It made them come alive in the present, and it gave them hope and direction for their future. And that's the truth about what the story of scripture does for us about understanding that this whole book is a story that explains Jesus in a way that makes sense of our past, that makes us come alive in the present and gives us direction and hope for the future. You might be like, well, how? Like, I I wish I could have listened in on that conversation. I wish I could have known or heard Jesus explain this whole story in a way that would do that for me. Well, in a sense, we have the privilege just because of where we fall in history to actually knowing probably in some shape or form what he said, partly because we have the whole rest of the gospels, the accounts of Jesus and the account of the early church and some letters. Um, but we also have people who I think are doing an amazing job at helping us see, maybe in, with fresh eyes or for some of us for the first time, that this really is a unified, powerful story that leads up to and through Jesus into our lives. And, and one, uh, one of these uh, such groups and tools is the Bible Project. we referenced them many times. They, I think, are doing an incredible job at helping many people, they've helped me in so many ways, see and read and understand this alternative, life-changing, powerful story of Jesus um, through the words of scripture. And so I want you to watch this video and almost imagine, yeah, this is in some shape or form probably what Jesus was explaining to them as they walked on the road.
2: Bible Bible's an important book, but it's
3: really long.
2: Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but all together they tell one unified story. So what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity. Or in Hebrew, Adam. And they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious
3: creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom
2: to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge and as a result they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story
3: of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah.
2: Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people. A nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. Even when their best
3: people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom,
2: even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened.
3: So even with God's personal guidance, Israel
2: fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And
3: so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends and these promises are left hanging.
2: And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion.
3: He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power.
2: And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. That's confusing, but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself. So
3: now humanity is presented with a new choice.
2: Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return.
3: The Jesus movement quickly
2: spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by putting pointing to the future day when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God.
0: In one sense, if you've been around our church for any period of time, uh, that's not new maybe to you. Say, yeah, like, I guess, yeah, the whole story is about Jesus. I mean, that's why at our church, we, we talk about Jesus every week. We sing about Jesus. We sing to Jesus. We listen to Jesus in prayer. Um, yeah, we talk about how the whole story is about him. And so maybe on one level, you'll be like, okay, I think I could read the Bible and start to understand it like that. But maybe the part that's more difficult for us is, well, how, how does that story intersect with my life? Like, how, does, how, does, how do I realize that this isn't just a story that, that is leading all the way to Jesus. It leads up and through Jesus into our story that is a part of this whole thing might be like, well, how how does a story instruct my life? Like if we think about the scripture as a rule book, okay, that I can find instructions to do this or do that or moralistic, you know, kind of little stories that I go, okay, I try to apply the moral of the story or whatever to my life. But how does a true alternative story change and intersect with and affect my life? And how do I live my life by it? Listen to what um, author and uh, former bishop uh, Tom Wright says about how a story— actually works to lead us and guide us. The question is, he says, how can a story be authoritative? If the commanding officer walks into the military barracks and begins, once upon a time, the soldiers are likely to be puzzled. At first sight, what we think of as authority and what we know as story do not readily fit together. But a moment's thought suggests that at deeper levels, there is more to it than that. The commanding officer might well need to brief the soldiers about what has been going on over the past few weeks so that they will understand the sensitivities and internal dynamics of the peacekeeping task they are now to undertake. The story will bring them up to date. Now it will be their task to act out the next chapter in the ongoing saga of their peacekeeping mission. I think the most important word in there, or set of words... When we're, when we're wrestling with how, do, how does this story intersect with ours and how do we live our lives in connection with this alternative, life-giving, life-changing, powerful story? Is, is it, Wright makes this comment about the next chapter uh, or the one we're in. <laughs> the next chapter, the one we're living in right now of this story and, um, <clears throat> I'm going to paraphrase something that he said that I thought was super helpful as we think about scripture in terms of chapters and really actually what he would, he would call a five act play that, that we are in. And as I use this language, hopefully this will help you sort of go, oh, well, here's where the story intersects with where we are today. He says that, um, uh, he describes the, the scriptures as a five act play act one is creation God's good and beautiful world that he made and human beings as a part of that. Everything good and beautiful and integrated as the way it was meant to be with human beings and nature and God and people in this healthy, beautiful relationship with God and with each other, with the world God made, the work God gave them to do, everything that was enjoyable and fulfilling and sustaining and life-giving. Act two is the fallout. (laughs) Sin, which is essentially human beings' decisions to say, God, we don't trust you. We will, We know you set this up, and you have an idea of how we're supposed to live, but we, want to tr- we don't want to trust you. We want to trust ourselves. We have our own idea of how we're supposed to live. And the, the act two in the Bible begins to just describe how so many things fell apart. There's verses sometimes that said, and each person just did what was right in their own eyes, which was anarchy, chaos, destruction, violence. Act three is Israel or God's starting over with, as the video showed us, Abraham and Sarah that were meant to start a whole new nation that would be a blessing to the world. God's plan was not to favor a certain ethnic group, but to say, through this, I'm starting over. It's a new creation. I'm going to start. I started with Adam and Eve. I'm starting with this new family that's going to be a blessing to the whole world. But if you read the story of Israel in in Act 3 and part of the scriptures in the Old Testament, you will find it's just a story of failure, of trying and failure and like continual distrust, people not trusting God and and the destruction, how basically no, no political system, no family, no individual, no king, no religion seems to be able to fix what is wrong with the human situation or to heal the world. And then comes Act 4, Jesus, the new creation, the new person or the author writing himself into the story. That's act four, Jesus arriving on the scene to show us in the flesh who God is, to make himself sort of the fulfillment of the whole story and to begin to bring God's healing and redemptive and restorative and um, new life work into this world, which of course culminates with Jesus' death and then resurrection, the new person. (laughs) Jesus himself uh, is, is killed and resurrected and becomes that new person. And then act five is the church. Which is the new Jesus people living out his mission in the world, and that's act five i added i didn 't tell NT write this because he doesn't know me I added. Part six, act six, which was the final restoration or the new creation where God will eventually remake our whole world. Well, we will have Eden in a sense again, and not just floating spiritual beings up there in the atmosphere, but a whole new creation of substance and life where there is no more rust, no more decay, no more tears, no more pain, no more sore. That's the five act play, a six act play that we are, that is the story of scripture, except you and I are invited in to be actors in what I would call 5B, the unwritten script. The unwritten script of 5B, where Act 5 is the church and we have the book of Acts, but the rest of the church is the history we're living in. We, Jesus followers, living in this stage in history, having to act out an unwritten script. And Wright's point is, he says, hey, if I gave you, I invited you as actors into a play, and I said, hey, I want you to act out this portion of the play, and I gave you the, the first five, you know, one, two, three, four, five, A, and I gave you six, and you knew the whole story, even if you didn't have a script, you would be able to live out, probably in a good way, how the story continues. You'd get it Right? You would understand that there's a dynamic and a story that you are living in. If you know the whole story, you can live out your portion of it, even though it's an unwritten script. How do we know what to do? Like, how would you know, like, oh, how are we meant to live? And we have these questions about, well, the, the Bible, how does the Bible tell me how to do this? How does it do that? Like, how am I going to make this decision about my money or my finance or my, my sexual life and my, my relationships and the job that I have or the way that we're meant to be as a church in this world? There's no written script. Where is it? Where's the verse? Where's, if we just treat this as a rule book or a wooden sort of uh, tool, it's going to be insufficient or we're going to misuse it. But this story carries on through Jesus right up into the present as an alternative story for us and the scripture. If we know the acts of the play, even though we don't have the script for this part that we're in, we know the play, we know the story. It gives us both the freedom to live this out in an unwritten script and say, hey, God gives us freedom to to be the church and to be ourselves in this season and time. But it also gives us boundaries because it has to fit with the story right? Because the story is already being written and we're already part of it. So we have to live it out in a way that people who know, and we who know the rest of the story go, yeah, that fits. That's a part of the story, even though the script wasn't written. And let me give you some illustrations of this. Last week, we talked about um, the presence of slavery in the Bible because it deals with a world that both in the ancient Near East and even in the Greco-Roman world where slavery was a big part of the economy and the way the world worked. Now, if we treat this just as a rule book, there we could find verses in there that might seem to say, yeah, I guess we're supposed to keep slaves or it's okay or slaves obey your masters. If it's a rule book, we can take certain things out and say, yeah, this still applies. And people in the South and pastors and churches for a period of time, um, uh, in, in, uh, in Europe during the North Atlantic slave trade and in the Deep South in the 20th century used verses from the Bible to keep and, and, uh, slaves and justify slavery. But if we understand this as a story that leads up and through Jesus, we ask ourselves, well, what's the story of slavery in the Bible? And I mentioned a few of these things last week, but I want to do it again just in the context of how do we read the story of slavery as it relates to Jesus? If the whole story is about Jesus, and this is a story, what's the story of slavery as it relates to Jesus? Well, we start to see that God um, in the Old Testament scriptures is very concerned about not just his own people, but people outside his own people's ethnic group. He's concerned about people who were marginalized. He's concerned about women and children. He's concerned about how the people even treated their slaves. And then he begins to move, and, and through the writings of the prophets, the prophets are criticizing God's people for their lack of attention to injustice and oppression and misusing their workers. You can't come in here and worship on, on the Sabbath day while you've um, misused and oppressed the people in your midst. Loose the chains of injustice. Break the yoke of slavery. That's what worship is. That's what God's people started to say, That or the prophets started to say to God's people. Well, now the story leads up to Jesus, and Jesus in the way he treated people and the way he treated society and those who were marginalized began to change the way that, and it was inviting his followers to see the world differently, who's high, who's low, who has power and influence, who's not, and, and, and spoke harshly against leaders and people who were wealthy, who misused their wealth or their power or didn't use it in the service of those who were low and poor and on the outside. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul writes, in Christ, there's no slave or free. And and as I said to you last week, the whole story of slavery starts to change. And if you look at the history of the emancipators, whether it's uh, Harriet Tubman or uh, William Wilberforce or Martin Luther King, it wasn't in spite of what the Bible said. It was because of what the Bible said. It was because of the story of Jesus that brought freedom, that leveled the playing field, that said every person is equal. Um, that, that each person has, has inherent value and worth, that Jesus himself showed us this is how God viewed the world, that the emancipator said, yeah, in the name of Jesus, not in spite of what the Bible says, in the name of Jesus, we get rid of slavery. It's the story of slavery. We start to read it that way through the lens of Jesus. It helps us make decisions. In this unwritten script, what do we do? What about the story of women in history, in society, in the Bible? If this is just a rule book, you can take certain verses that would seem to condone or at least imply directly or indirectly an inequality between men and women, a restriction of women to only certain places in the home or in society or in the, in the church. But if we ask ourselves, wait, this is a story, this is a story that runs up and through Jesus, what do we begin to see? What's the story of women in the Bible? Well, early on in Scripture, in the Old Testament, we see the way God uh, interacted equally with men and women we actually see men and women created equally in the image of god at the very beginning of the world that somehow men and women this in in the same uh at the same uh, level but in different ways reflect the image of god to the world we begin to see how god treats people who are in uh women who are in bad situations and and creating circumstances that are more favorable to them. We see God actually choosing women leaders to to lead his people, even in the Old Testament. Um, And then what's the story? Where's the story heading? story about Jesus. What does Jesus do? We see Jesus ministering equally to men and women, and especially to women because they, they were in difficult places. So many stories of healing or miraculous interventions involve men and women. So we see the equal ministry of Jesus to men and women. We also see Jesus inviting women to follow him as well. The story of Mary and Martha, where Mary's in the kitchen and Martha's learning from Jesus is not a story about, hey, it's better to to, you know, to read your Bible than to clean the kitchen. He says, Mary, it said, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a term that describes discipleship, following. And he says, Martha, Mary has chosen what is good because it t- in, those, in those days, a woman didn't have the right to follow a rabbi. Women, and woman would never be called to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus is saying in that moment, no, Mary's chosen something good. Don't tell her she has to go back to the traditional role of what a woman would do in, in um, first century Judaism. She has chosen Uh, a better thing to follow me. And we know the women were the first uh, uh, witnesses at the tomb. Um, They were the ones who went. They were at the cross when Jesus died. They didn't abandon him uh, like the the male disciples did. They went to the tomb. This is the story of women in the Bible. And then uh, the Apostle Paul starts to say, okay, in Christ, not only is no slave or free, but there's no male or female and we see uh, house church leaders who were women, Aquila and Priscilla, together in the first church, leading and teaching other people. Um, we see the Holy Spirit uh, falling and giving gifts, falling on men and women, great and low. Like the, the, the book of Acts describes the Holy Spirit coming to everyone, the spiritual gifts given to everyone. We see uh, Lydia and Philippi was probably a house church leader starting to move. And even in the history of the church since then, women leaders, even though many of the culture still for many years was still um, patriarchal or favoring men, the story of women through the Bible is running in a trajectory that where we get to in the unwritten script, I think we have the freedom We have the freedom to say, we can carry this forward, that we can advocate for women who are full of the Holy Spirit, just like men are, that are given gifts, just like men are, that are able to, to be world changers in partners with, alongside men in the world and in the church. The the scriptures, the story gives us freedom to act that out. There's a freedom in that story. We go, yeah, that seems to be consistent with where the story that heads to and through Jesus was going. But it also gives us boundaries. I don't think if we look at the story of men and women in, in through the scripture that we have the freedom to say there's no such thing as a male or a female. That gender is just sort of a, a human or social construct. It's not the way we're meant to be as human beings. I think we say it, we can affirm the equality and the joint calling of men and women, that doesn't mean we're eliminating the fact that there are unique and and different things, not stereotypes. We want to ditch the stereotypes because they don't fit with the story. But we can look and say the confines of the story still say that when God created human beings, male and female, there was something about each of them that uniquely reflected God to the world. So the story of scripture that runs through Jesus gives us the freedom and also gives us boundaries to say we fit within this. For some of us, we're uncomfortable with the idea of freedom, that we would actually have the freedom to to write new parts of this story that we're in, where we don't have a script for, but we have all the rest of the parts. Some of us are uncomfortable with the freedom that that might give us. Others of us are uncomfortable with the fact that the story would give us boundaries that say, no, it has to fit. It isn't just a free-for-all. We can't just do whatever we want. We actually have to understand the story and say, what fits? Because we aren't the author. Jesus is. And the story is about him. And so the boundaries are are confining us to the story so that it continues to play out the way it has been written. Some churches and and pastors and traditions and books want to emphasize the freedom that we have. Others want to emphasize or mostly talk about the boundaries that the story has. And I think we need to let the Holy Spirit invite us into the tension of both. The Holy Spirit wants to call us back over and over to living in connection with the author. That's ultimately what this is about. If this story is about the author who wrote himself in and who the story goes up to him and leads through him, I think we need to learn to live in that tension that can only be navigated by connection with the author. The whole goal of this then is, as we've been saying over these last few weeks, is to bring us into a deeper intimacy and relationship with the author so that you and I individually and collectively can faithfully live out (laughs) within the freedom and the boundaries of this story, what it means to be the Jesus people today. And I could think of no better um, uh, next step for you really in this. um, If you're going to, uh, to, to like if 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 our ability to live this part of the unwritten script out well is tied to us knowing the story and knowing the author and immersing ourselves in the story i could think of no better tool to recommend to you obviously we're reading it together and we have this community bible reading program that we're doing you can find out more about that on the website but is the video we already saw the bible project they are a group that i think is doing some incredible work right now and the video i showed you is from a series um several videos only about five to seven minutes each about what are you reading what is the bible about what kind of book is this what is the story and how do i read the different parts and so i would just recommend it as an amazing resource you can go online and find there's so many videos you can go on youtube but there's a on the website the bibleproject.com you can see the series of videos um I said to my a couple of my boys when they were, they've been reading scripture for a while. And I know when I was that age, there's lots of parts I didn't understand. I said to them, listen, take a pause on reading and go through each of the book summaries. There's like a seven minute video about each of the books of the Bible to because I wanted them to grasp the story because this is, you can't read and some of these parts. They're dense reading or they're culturally sort of far removed. If we don't understand how they're part of the story, we're going to miss it. And so the Bible Project is a resource you can use for all of those things. So I would just highly recommend that. But as we close, you know, I was thinking about these two men that were on the road with Jesus, and he, and he appears to them, and he tells them this story that, that changes their lives. And I was thinking, for some of us, maybe for some of you, the most important part of this is realizing that this is a story that makes sense of your past. Maybe some of you were like, yeah, Jesus, I need you to help me make sense of my past, the pieces of my life. I want to pray and hope that that as you read this story, as you understand it more, it will actually have that same effect on your life of helping to make sense of your past. Perhaps some of you are more like, I I need to come alive in the present. Like there's a vitality and a passion and I want my heart to burn again with what's going on in my life I, and so that I can understand where I'm at in the present that as you read the story, as you immerse yourself in it to get a greater connection to the author, that Jesus' voice and words in your life would help you come alive in the present. And then for some of us, it would say, no, I need more hope and direction for the future. Hope <laughs> that, I, that tomorrow will be better. Or the future, where my story's heading is one that's Hopeful and that I can get direction, where do I go next? That as you immerse yourself in the story and have a greater connection and intimacy with the author who wrote himself in, who the whole story is about, that you would find more hope and direction for your future. Friends, whatever it is that you need, my prayer and trust is that as we get closer to Jesus through his story, that he will help to make sense of our past, to make us come alive in the present, and to give us hope and direction for the future.